The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBigBeacon. And our first segment is sponsored by the book that is transforming higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And today we're um, pleased to be joined by Big Beacon Program Assistant and um, an occasional co-host, Emma Schoenfelner. Welcome to the show, Emma. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be back. It's been a while. Well, it has been a while, and of course, uh, most weeks you're behind the scenes uh, tweeting and uh, uh, get, getting corralling our guests and getting them onto the show and so forth, but uh, uh, this week we thought we'd kind of have a conversation uh, uh, about shift skills. Sounds and good, I, yeah. Yeah, and I thought um, it's been a while. We, last time um, we had you on the show, we talked a little bit about your your background, and people can look on the program page to um, to learn more. But uh, before we get started, what should uh, listeners know uh, about you know, what you've been up to since you last appeared on the show? Let's see. What have I been up to? Uh, always uh, interesting working with Big Beacon and delving more into this world of engineering and higher education that I just never thought I would be so enmeshed in. Uh, so it's always interesting learning about that because um, – for our listeners, I have a background in the arts and television and theater, so it's a, a whole different world. But there are more similarities uh, behind the scenes, I guess, than you may think. Um, but I've been doing some more theater work. After spending time with uh, a lot of academics and engineering folk, it's nice to have some part of the year where I'm with my, my weird artsy people. <laughs> well, and, and uh, of course, a lot of... Uh... STEM is now putting the A in into the acronym STEAM, and I, I think I was at the it was in the it was in the '90s, I think eight, late '80s or early '90s. There was a meeting of young, uh, up and coming researchers uh, and and educators at the National Academy of Engineering and National Academy of Science uh, that came together and talked about the teaching of of um, 
the higher education and the sciences and engineering. And I think it was at that meeting that the acronym STEM was um, was coined and has become part of the part of our vocabulary ever ever yeah. since. I mean, I'm, so, yeah. I'm 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 a, a fan of the idea of adding a nice A to that mix because uh, I think one of the things I've really realized through working with Big Beacon is how creative engineering actually is. And that was something that was just a huge surprise to me, not knowing really what that looked like. So, Well, and, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a shame that the way we teach have taught engineering and the way we talk about engineering is it's kind of this thing that was, if, uh, you know, unless you're a math science nerd uh, and and uh, carry the calculator around and so forth. Is no, don't even, don't even bother. But of course, it is uh, very creative, and I think that's, I think that's changing. Uh, uh, Three Joy and Big Beacon are sponsoring the first robotics team over at Saugatuck High School. Did last year, they actually won, and I think their second time out, and and um, and so uh, and the kinds of things that the kids do to to make a robot that wins a competition like that is of course very innovative and creative. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, but actually we're here not to talk about me. We're here to turn the tables on Dave a little bit. Uh, so Dave, uh, you're the regular host of the show and usually people ask you personal or you ask people personal questions at the top of the show. Um, but let's, let's have you actually answer these questions for once. Um, so Dave, uh, you're an expert in the kind of artificial intelligence called genetic algorithms. Uh, you've written one of the most cited books in computer science with over 69,000 citations. You were trained as a civil engineer and have worked as a hydrolician and hydrologist, and now you help schools transform in line with creative, the creative imperative of the 21st century. But let's go back to your log cabin. So who were some of your early influences that put you on your current path? Yeah, and I ask that question of people every week, and the answers are always interesting. And I, as I think about it in my own case, I um, so there are a number, you know, so there are a number of early um, influences. Uh, of course, I, uh, I'm an engineer. I, I came by engineering honestly. Uh, my dad's an engineer, um, and um, and his uh, talking about engineering around the dinner table influenced me very, very much. And and uh, and when I would go in with him to work, I would see the the plastic models of of car frames and wheels and things that he would build and test and take great pride in. And so that rubbed off on me. And then I had my uh, grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a ham radio operator, so I, I learned about gizmos from him and became a, a ham radio operator at thirteen and made Heath kits and, and, uh, still remember fondly the smell of solder, um, uh, soldering and, and then the frustration of, uh, something that wouldn't, wouldn't work. And then you'd get it to work. Um, uh, after, you know, a lot of, a lot of connecting the dots of, uh, tubes and, and then it was tubes back then a few transistors, but mainly uh, vacuum tubes. And, and, um, so it was things, it was things like that, but then, uh, there are a lot of people along the way. A high school physics teacher who kind of took a number of us under his wing and and uh, cared about us and and uh, you know trusted us. Uh, we were the AV guys in high school, and but it, it was more than that. We played golf and we talked and and uh, but I think um, I I don't know. I I think um, I think a lot of the 
the the the sort of early uh, fooling around with technology and getting things to work on my own as a young person sort of persuaded me that I could do do whatever I wanted to do. I never thought about not taking on something new. And then there were you know, and then there were a lot of lot of a uh, lot of other um, um, yeah there were other there were you know there were a fair number of Actually, it's not. I think. A, I think a life is a series of unleashing experiences where you sort of find out what you're what you're capable of. Oh, for sure. No, I love hearing that because I I hear like little snippets of of how you came into this whole world. Yeah. But uh, no, it's nice to hear kind of the whole trajectory of it. Um, you were kind of mentioning unleashing experiences, yeah. but do you think there's one kind of moment or something that really sticks out for you? I think there were I think there were a couple. So, you know, I mentioned earlier ones, but my first job out of school was at a company called Stoner Associates and I was I was like I was uh well there had been another engineer but he left and so I was like the first engineer that stuck. So mm-hmm. and uh Mike Stoner had a new building out in a cornfield in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and I went to work there and my first day on the job he handed me four manuals to computer programs that he had written for the oil and gas business, and he said, a customer in Harrisburg needs help. Go get, hop on the phone and help him. And then I got mm-hmm. off the phone. He said, then there are salesmen in Chicago that uh, need a sales presentation on Monday. Now, this is like my second day on the job, and it was like, and I just thought that was normal. I didn't know mm-hmm. any better. And and so, and I, and I thought I was going to be programming um, these codes because that's what I was trained to do, And but there was all this people stuff. There was all this working with people and sales and customer service. And it was, whoa, what's this about? Nobody, where was the course on that stuff? And so, but I, you know, I, I lived through it and, um, and enjoyed it. And, and uh, so I think that was a big one. I think, uh, getting a PhD was kind of, uh, um, intentional. I went back to get a PhD to, um, unleash myself. Um, hmm. I, I wondered, wondered if I could do it. And I sort of I denied that I wanted to do it for a long time. And one day at a cocktail party in England, a faculty member at Michigan State, Dave Wigard, asked me. He said, "Dave, when are you going back for your PhD?" He didn't ask if. He said, "When." It was like, "Of course I would." And I said, uh, and I gave him my usual drill that no, it's not cost effective. The marginal benefit, marginal. Co- I had this rational argument against doing it. And realized that's exactly what I wanted to do. So I went back and. Got my PhD and and proved to myself that I could do independent research on my own, and that that was sort of intentional intentional unleashing. And then I guess maybe writing my first book was another kind of unleashing. So I, I anyways, I maybe I feel so strongly about unleashing because it, um, it's been such a strong part of what I've what I've done over the course, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, a number of times. No, Actually, really I'm curious. I'm nice. curious to turn that around on you, and um, um, and I think we may have talked about this the last time. But um, where where's the unleashing in your life? Hmm. I would say there was a major unleashing that happened actually when I moved from the Detroit area over to Saugatuck here in West Michigan, hmm. um, and was in an art class um, at Saugatuck. And Saugatuck High School is a very it's an artistic town, as you know, um, yeah. very well-funded arts-wise, including the school program. And 
being in an art class there was the first time that anyone kind of showed me that you could have some sort of life and career in the arts, um, even though I was always interested in that. Um, and that would have been the obvious thing for me to do from the outside. I still was kind of thinking, oh, it's not really practical. Oh, there's no way to really make this happen, that I would just go to some, in my view, some sort of generic school program and major in something vague and find my way that way. Um, yep. But but it was it was nice to have people show that you could have a life like this. Hmm. Um, and, of course, it's a hard... It's a hard journey, um, and it, uh, in, everyone in the arts is constantly trying to figure it out, though. I mean, who, who isn't? <laughs> um, but that, that was a real turning point, I think, for me um, that allowed me to, to think of creativity as a, a thing that I could really do and not just some sort of side hobby. So that was a, a, big, a big shift for me, I think. Well, and I, I think the... And I think there's more of this now, and I've seen some more of it, and I've seen people talk about it more. But it seems to me that sort of, you know, uh, making a career in the arts, to a large, to a large extent, certainly the visual arts, uh, the theater, you know, theater arts, and uh, musical arts uh, have have more structure to them. But visual arts has always been very entrepreneurial, and yet how little emphasis is placed in many arts programs on the entrepreneur, the business side of what it means to be in the arts. And it just seems to me that that's a, that's a huge, um, um, lacuna. It's a huge gap, um, for, for people in the arts to not, you know, you're basically going to have to make this life and make it, uh, through your entrepreneurship in many cases. And, and, but to not cover that is is the kind of malpractice that we talk about this show uh, usually on the engineering side of the ledger. I completely agree. Um, and I, I when I was applying to different art schools, I noticed that that a lot of them were very fine arts based, and they didn't really talk about anything yep. about succeeding in the commercial yep. world. And that's actually why I kind of chose Columbia. Is they had a, I went to Columbia College in Chicago, and they, they really focused more on how do you market yourself, how do you do things commercially. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely a factor in my, my choice. Well, and I've been, and, and, I've, and I just to interject too, and I've been working with people, and they've been thinking about, okay, what, um, like you, you've been down uh, with me to our friends at Purdue, and, and uh, one of the challenges for their polytechnic down there is how to spread technology to other degree programs and a natural is for things like um, coding and IT for for the arts or for arts and sciences and how do you so if you have an arts background how do you take that and and use it in a technological world again this sort of steam idea how do you become sort of technology dangerous enough that you can use that as part of the palette that you paint from when you're trying to you're trying to make the portrait of your career. Right. No, definitely. I, I wish I had some more coding knowledge, personally. I always kind of wish that. I, I wish I was young enough to be in that uh, Girls Who Code program. I would love to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. That would be nice. But um, actually, something that you were saying at the beginning of your journey, you were saying that when you first got that job, you didn't realize yeah. how many people skills uh, things required and why they didn't teach you that. Um, so kind of circling back around to what we're talking about today, um, you and Mark did a show a few months ago about 
shift skills, uh, noticing, listening, questioning. Yep. Um, but let's talk about shift skills because that kind of brought it right up. Yeah. Well, so and, yeah. As well, and so it actually for me it does go uh, that uh, that experience at Stoner was was crucial because I realized uh, you know it was all technology stuff and I knew that pretty well and yet I was you know first days on that in the cornfield in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I was being asked to work with customers and go make sales calls and. And yeah, when I came back off the road, I did do some coding and fix the programs when they broke and so forth. But, um, but so much of it was people stuff, and it was, oh, um, how do you do that? And how do you do that? How do you do that well? Okay, I was taught how to be a good technical engineer well, but here there was all here was all this other stuff. So that that was a formative experience, and and um, I th- so. And and usually we call those soft skills, and usually we're not very articulate about, you know, what what we mean by that. But usually it's something about communication. It's about working with people. It's about working. These days it's much more about collaboration uh, and working on teams or in groups. Um, but that early experience, actually, so my own in my own teaching career, and I, I went. Uh, I was at the University of Alabama, and then went to the University of Illinois, and. And I was uh, in a program called general engineering, and I was given a senior level course that was sort of a boot camp for kids going out into the world. So they were finishing, and now they were going out into the world. And how do you prepare them for what's coming in the sort of non-technical side? And, it, and of course, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a lot of hours. In fact, it was a zero-credit course that the students resented taking because they didn't get credit for it. But I... I I tried to change that course into something that was about writing and presenting and human relations. And I, and I even wrote a little book for McGraw Hill called life skills and leadership for engineers. That's uh, since out of um, publication, but actually it came back as a book called the entrepreneurial engineer in 2006. So, so it's, it's those, those things that we, it's, I think it, 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 it grabs and takes further those things that we tend to call soft skills that we, don't real that we say that we are inarticulate about and don't really know how to talk about. So you don't like the term soft skills, notoriously. Uh, so yeah. what what would you say is wrong with that term? Well, it, I think there are a couple things. I think it. I think the term soft, especially in a technical field like engineering, that term's derogatory. It denigrates those. It's like, well, it essentially says there's real stuff in engineering, and that's the hard stuff. That's the technical stuff. That's your math. That's your science. Your engineering science, and design, and this other stuff is soft. It's there and it's important, but um, any idiot can do that stuff. Is kind of the attitude that we have. So I think it's. So I think there's there's that sense of it. But I think. But I think the other part is that that the term soft is just wrong. That, that we live at a time where we've got so much good social science, we've got so much good neuroscience, we've got such great philosophy of language, the, the amalgam of stuff that now makes up the core of what we're coming to call shift skills is really, um, it's really quite rigorous and, and, uh, and quite effective. A lot of it, and a lot of it comes, uh, these days comes uh, through the lens of uh, executive coaching, where people get go get trained as a coach and they, they get to, they charge fairly large amounts of money, 300, 400, $500,000 an hour to work with people in the C-suite. And, uh, 
um, CTOs, CMOs, CFOs, all the C's. And and uh, but why why do you have to become a C-suite person be, when you learn this stuff that is essentially kind of human being 101 kind of stuff? I mean, it's sort of these these are sort of this is the core of of a successful life, especially in an organizational setting. Why why do we wait until you become a CEO to actually really work seriously on that stuff? That's what, I guess that's why I, I dislike the term. Yeah, no, I completely agree. These they're not in any way soft or unimportant or or lesser skills in any way. They're very much core essential skills, I think. And I I think that uh, talking about this in the context of Big Beacon and everything is going to be helpful for everyone who's trying to do anything in education or change in their organization or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, they're just, they're incredibly important and people need to, to come to realize that I think in their own time. Yeah. Nicely said. Why don't, why don't we take a little bit of a break and come back and talk a little bit, uh, go a little bit, uh, deeper into shift skills and talk about what they are a little bit more and why they're so important. How's that sound? Sounds good. This is Big Beacon Radio with uh, special guest host, Emma Schoenfellner. Uh, stay tuned with us. And we'll, we'll go deeper into uh, shift skills. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm your host, Dave Goldberg, and we're joined by co-host Emma Schoenfellner. Second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational institution or organization. And to ask uh, questions or make comments, go to Twitter and use the hashtag BigBeacon. So uh, we're, we're back with Emma and... Uh, Actually, Emma, last time, we, last segment, we were talking about uh, shift skills, and you've worked as a as a trainer uh, as part of our uh, Three Joy uh, and Big Beacon training for faculty mainly, and uh, sh- and part of that is devoted to shift skills. Uh, oftentimes, we do it under the rubric of uh, change that sticks, um, so that people that are trying to make change in educational institutions have both the personal and organizational skills to try to make the kinds of changes they want and 
uh, as someone who doesn't come from uh, you don't come from a faculty background, you don't come from a technical background. What's what's your uh, uh, what do, what do, what do you notice uh, and and um, uh, as as part of your inner interaction with that kind of training? Um, I think the most enlightening thing about those experiences have been going into the training, having actually all these concepts of shift skills and, and uh, the first day of the course is devoted to noticing, listening, and questioning, yep. and to, ha- to see people be a bit skeptical and kind of uncomfortable and not know what they're getting into, um, or they're, they're questioning, like, how is this going to be useful to me? And then as people warm up to it and they play along and they talk with other people, that it actually does start to become clear to people. And it's kind of that unleashing, watching the unleashing of the people in the course has mm. been really interesting to see. Um, aside from also when I, before I actually went on the course, that you gave me some things to read over and look at yep. so I understood what these concepts were um, yep. before I went. And I think that a lot of us, even if you're in the, the communication world, think that you know more about these things than you do. Like everyone can, can do these things in some capacity, but to really think about them and analyze what, what it really means to really listen or notice things, um, that, that kind of situation, I just didn't, I didn't expect to see such a huge difference, but I really did in myself and other people. So, well, and, and I think that's, that's actually, you know, so the, part of the problem with these things is everyone thinks they're expert at them. You know, oh yeah, listening, got it, check. Uh, right. Noticing, yeah, I'm a great noticer, check. Uh, questions, yeah, I, I'm a, I can ask great questions. And But to then, then when you break it down and you sort of decompose that into further pieces and bring some rigor to it and, and bring awareness that actually you – Yes, you communicate, and you've learned to communicate in this um, imitative way since um, early childhood. But, but you really have never talked to anyone about what co- that communication is about. So, like one of the one of the questions we ask in the training is, "What is language?" Well, that seems like a hideously stupid question because, well, of course, everyone knows what language is. But, but actually, part of the the shift that is in shift skills is the shift that took place and and how we think about language that took place uh, among philosophers of language in the 20th century when went from thinking of language as the, merely this thing that where we communicate and we we transmit a thought to another person through the medium of language that we think of language as now this very generative thing that actually creates new possibilities and we think of language as having a structure that we don't fully understand and what's that structure about and how do we really exploit that, that, that structure and the rules of language in a, in a way that makes our teamwork better, that in a way that makes our storytelling crisper and more precise and actually more, um, more understanding of diversity, more understanding of how other people's stories may differ, um, differ from our own. And, and once you you know, sort of get kind of those things in place, uh, with with speech acts, I was alluding to assertions, assessment, requests, commitments, and declarations, among other speech acts. Um, it just it blows your mind at, at at how how many possibilities there are open to you in thinking of, say, language that way, or in being articulate about 
more articulate about your emotions and how your emotions interact with your story and, and your actions. Um, and, and, in pretty different in in pretty different ways. Yeah, no, it's definitely huge, a ton of connections there for sure. Um, speaking of which, you've placed shift skills kind of at the center of Big Beacon's yeah. current two plus three moves initiative. So, why are shift skills so important to educational transformation specifically? Well, I, in many ways, I think if they're not the whole ball game, they're there's 60 to 70 to 80 per percent of it. I think a lot of, of what ails education is um, an educational transformation is a lack of noticing of, of many of the assumptions that have been made for centuries. I mean, higher education goes back to um, um, 11th and 12th centuries, uh, it's like, it's a, it's pretty old kind of, uh, and, and traditional discipline. And so it's been around for a while, has a very strong culture and we don't even really think much about it. And, and that's actually culture is sort of the way we do things in, in this organization and the thing, and, and many of the assumptions that we take for granted in a culture aren't even, um, we, we can't even, we can't even label their, their, um, when you violate them or when you go, when you go against them, uh, people will act against you or, or become offended that you've done something that goes against the culture, but they won't be able to tell you why, um, that's a, that's a mistake. It's just, well, we don't do things that way here. Uh, we, we had, uh, John Cotter, um, on the show last weekend talking about a book by essentially by, uh, by that same, that same, same name. So, I think I think the shifts the shift skills are at the at the core of um, if you want to lead change now you need to have the shift skills under your belt if you want to be an educator in a changed institution you need to be able to make the shift from expert teacher to to coach and and then much of the shift in content um, needs to be a shift skills shift yeah we need to Content's important, but if we really want to teach young people how to learn, um, that's that's all about shift skills um, and uh, awareness and and um, self guidance and self mastery. So I think I think so I think I just it, those those core skills are central to to leading, uh, teaching and and learning in the 21st century, and so it's it's for everybody that's a party to the educational process. So, would you say there are any other kind of ways to describe or or define educational transformation outside of adding all of those wonderful kind of awareness things to the to the mix? Well, so transformation is a general term, but I think the and and different people will define it differently. A lot of what people call transform transformation or transformative is reform, and um, and it's not really transformation. It's sort of it's kind of doing what we already know how to do and doing it pretty well. Um, and so when people talk about active learning or project-based learning or any of the X learnings, experiential learning, and they're, and they're talking about having different content and curriculum and pedagogy, um, I think we're mainly, we're mainly talking about reform. You're not talking about um, transformation. And we're still largely talking about an educational system that is wedded to obedience. There's a body of knowledge. 
and you need, and I know it, and you need, I'm the teacher, and you need to learn it because I know it, and you need to learn what I know. And so I would say that the current regime is obedience-based. Now, if we're really transforming to the imperatives of this century as opposed to the last one, it seems to me that we want the next Steve Jobs. We want people who are going to start businesses. We want people who are going to fix broken governments. We want people who are going to um, go out there and do stuff that hasn't been done yet. And, and to do that, I think the central piece of that is this unleashing piece. So our, do you, or, 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 or to put it another, to use another way, to counter the counter uh, juxtaposition of, of, of the word obedience is with the word courage. Do we have a courage-based regime where people have the courage to go do stuff that hasn't been done and face um, the opposition, the resistance, the we don't do things that way here? Uh, but yet still go ahead and, and do things. And so it's that, that kind of experience of being unleashed, I think, is central to what we're now, what, to transformational experiences in, in this century. And, 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 um, and, and, and so for me, transformation equals courage-based uh, education, or transformation equals unleashing. And when people show me, say, oh, here's this great change initiative, my question to them is, where is the unleashing? Where is it that you've trusted young people to do something that they want to do, not what you necessarily want them to do? So if traditional education has been about obedience to instructors and, and having you know reverence for that body of knowledge, and then transformation moves towards unleashing and new, new things and, and innovation, um, how do you find a balance between kind of taking maybe the good parts of, of mastering known things of the old way with this new frontier? Well, and, I, and you've asked the question in a way that I think is... Um, um, is, is really great because usually people ask it in a more fearful way. They say, well, uh, not every, so they'll ask it, well, not everyone can be Steve Jobs. Um, not everyone can be unleashed. And don't they have, don't young people have to be, don't they have to know something? And so sometimes people will read a whole new engineer and they'll, they'll, they'll look at Mark and me and go, well, you guys are advocating and training engineers that, um, build, uh, bridges, that fall down because they don't know enough about uh, about structural mechanics, and nothing could be further from the truth. And in fact, so like uh, one of the examples that we use on the program a lot is Olin College, and and Olin College is interesting. And I've used this example on the show before, but it's interesting um, because it's on the list of hardest schools, most difficult or challenging, and it's also on lists of the most fun. So there's there is there's a way there. So there's a polarity between challenge and fun. In, in a way that you get both. And I think when you juxtapose obedience to body of knowledge and instructors and courage to explore the unknown and do, do what hasn't been done, that we, we want both. We want the best parts of both of those. And, but people usually view these opposites as things where it's, an, it's either or. And we've had Barry Johnson on the show before, and he's very articulate about what he calls polarity management. Uh, Peter Elbow, back in the 80s, wrote a nice book on, on um, embracing con- the contraries of education. And, I, and actually, I, I, if I, uh, we were talking about unleashing before. I think I was unleashed as a writer 
by Peter Elbow in his writing, his book, his famous book, Writing with Power, because in that book, he embraced the free writing and being generative in writing as well as being a good editor. And I learned from him that you could do those opposites and do them well. And I think to the extent that that my writing has been read and others have enjoyed it um, is, is because I, I embrace the polarities of, of writing. And so the educational transformation process is just filled with, with these polarities. And we shouldn't view that one or the other has to be chosen. No, we can have the best of both worlds, but that's what we have to think about. We have to think about getting the best of both worlds. And oftentimes, though, like if right now we're stuck in the shadow of obedience-based education and we're looking at the, the chocolate of, of, um, of unleashing, the, there are many people fearful that we're going to lose the good stuff. Well, no, let's not lose the, the good, good stuff, but let's really be thoughtful and reflective about what the good stuff of obedience-based education is. What part of that is good? And then what part of that is squeezing the, the last little bit of creativity out of young people today in ways that, that, that don't don't really help what we're trying to accomplish. How do we how do we get the best of both worlds? Sometimes it's a matter of doing a little of one and a little of another. Sometimes it's a matter of time sharing. You do obedience for a while, you do you do unleashing for a while. Sometimes it's different people are responsible for different parts of the equation. But however you do it, you really need to you really need to manage the those those polarities well. No, I completely agree. I, I think a lot of people just like to see things in black and white when really polarities are, are there to be balanced in many ways. So that's a, a nice point that I always enjoy. But it's, it's actually a point, but there's also a point, although when, you, when you're stuck in the shadow of a polarity, when you're stuck in obedience base, you can't get people excited about this attractive pull by, by talking about balancing. So there's actually, there's a polarity between being persuasive and being sort of um, realistic. Persuasion mm-hmm. depends on getting people excited and overemphasizing the poll, which I think maybe is part of why people reacted negatively to some of the message of the book. We were persuasive. We argued for unleashing. But in reality, we, are, we do realize that there is this balancing that needs to take place. But if you start with balancing at the beginning, then you don't get, people, you don't get the people who might actually face the resistance that they're going to face to actually get up and try to do it and, 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 and take on, take on the task. Um, when people are revolutionaries, you know, so like in the American revolution, I don't, um, I don't think anyone would have gotten excited by a message of, well, we're going to have freedom, but with a little bit of tyranny of a federal government, um, that you got excited about freedom and, and people went towards, and towards that pole. So there's actually a polarity in polarity management itself. So meta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's another level above that, but um, uh, we can look for it and then we probably are off into infinite regress. Yeah, I'm sure there is. There's always another level. <laughs> yeah. But uh, actually we're talking about kind of young people and, and transformation and how, how faculty can kind of use that. So, so what, to what extent, can current faculty help young people transform kind of in that vein of, of polarities and shift skills? Yeah. And I think I've already mentioned a little bit about it. And, and I, I think that the, the pol- the polarity for instructors is around expert, which you get trained as a PhD. You're supposed to know a lot of stuff about 
this area that you've studied very deeply. Um, but then that's about that's about the sharing, this the obedience part. Here, I know this stuff. I'm going to share it with you. Listen to me. I'm an expert. And then, but then the 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 polarity with that is 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 coach. I, we've labeled in in whole new engineer. Mark and I labeled it as coach. That and and coaching in its purest form. Like a mentor will, a mentor is sharing what they know because they've been there before. But a coach actually doesn't even have to have your same experiences. A coach is there to listen to you and draw out of you what's inside of you. And so a coach is there not knowing what you should do, but kind of encouraging you to take action to learn on your own behalf. So I think the polarity, uh, the shift skills help faculty who are not used to it. Um, um, become better, better coaches. And my, for example, in my own case, when I took training as a leadership coach, um, I always wanted to be more of a Socratic teacher and I just didn't really know how to do it. But the listening and the questioning and the noticing of coaching got me to the point where that became natural. And I walked into classrooms and was more naturally, uh, Socratic in a way that was, I think, attractive to students and, and attractive to me. I had always aspired to that, but I just didn't know how and learning how to listen that way and learning how to ask questions and be okay with the answers that came back and ask more questions rather than giving answers sort of taught me taught me um, more of this. And, and, and actually, of course, really coaching people as, as part of their professional and career lives um, helped me learn how to do that. I'm, I'm kind of looking at the time. I think we've got to take another, uh, take another break right now. Why don't we do that? And then we can... Um, we can talk a little bit more about uh, shift skills and then talk about how, uh, how Big Beacon's uh, helping other people kind of bring these uh, to their own organizations. Sounds good. Yep. This is uh, Big Beacon Radio with a special uh, guest host, Emma Schoenfelner. In the next segment, we're going we're gonna to do that. We're going to talk a little bit more about shift skills and, and uh, talk about uh, Big Beacon and its three, uh, three communities of innovators. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming webinar. Join us Wednesday, 
January 18th at 20, uh, uh, 2017 at 4 p.m. Eastern for our webinar, Four Keys to Ineffective Educational Change or How to Botch Transformation Without Really Trying. Learn the five, four mistakes that, that people make in modern change initiatives and how to overcome them and learn how you can join Big Beacon's three communities of innovators today. Go to bigbeacon.org to sign up or write to, to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And we're rejoined by Emma Schoenfellner, a program assistant and uh, uh, guest host for today. And and Emma, um, I did a lot. Of, I've been doing a lot of talking in these segments, but I'm I'm a little uh, curious. Um, you've you've been in this um, game with me for a little bit, and and um, and you've 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 shared some of the things that you've noticed about these topics and how they land on. On, on people, but how, you know, from your experience, how, how do some of these topics land on students, educators, and leaders? What else would you like to add? Uh, I would say a, a takeaway from a recent meeting we have, we had in one of our, our big beacon communities that we'll probably talk about is um, talking about shift skills and kind of presenting that to people and and we're presenting that to people that have already created a lot of really interesting things and in schools or in their own organizations. And to those people, shift skills is actually something that they are really, like, hungry for. And they mm. do want to learn more about that. Um, and the kind of enthusiasm that I've heard from people around that um, is really interesting because we're talking about said, people that have already made a lot of headway, um, but that they they know that there's something beyond that that can probably be reached through learning about these kind of things. So that was kind of a takeaway that I had recently that I thought was interesting. Well, you know, when you look at the landscape of uh, nonprofits, and Big Beacon's a 501c3 organization, but there, there are a lot of traditional nonprofits that have a um, uh, very focused mission of uh, doing something, you know, so like an art center or a, a center to... Uh, feed the hungry, or so they're um, very, um, very specific missions, and they're very content driven um, uh, to do this this particular thing. And one of the struggles with creating something like Big Beacon that is, it has been this, it, it has been about filling this need. Essentially, edu- it's really an educational need. It's sort of an educational need of educational change that Big Beacon is trying to fill and. Tr- and trying to understand that has been difficult, and, and then trying to communicate that that's what you're doing has been difficult, and and um, and so a lot of the language, a lot of the language of strategy, for example, if you if you read uh, Michael Porter on strategy, and you read other books about uh, how to create a business and being you know and focused and so forth, um, it, we're we're trying to be focused on something, but we're trying to be focused on things across a group of people that is trying to do something that's actually very hard. And the need is for the need is for education. The need is for um, uh, skills that people don't even know. Um, you, you, when you talk about these things, and people finally realize that, oh yes, I do need those. That realization takes some. It takes a while of uh, flailing around with the the skills that you you have at your disposal to realize that I need something more. I actually need to be a leader at a, at a, at a higher level and, or at a different level. And nobody's ever prepared me for that. If you think about, you know, you think about what an administrator gets in, in going into leadership in higher ed, 
usually there'll be a there'll be some work about the bureaucracy. Here's the paperwork that you fill out for hiring someone. Here's the paperwork you fill out um, for giving someone a raise. Here, you know, so there's a lot of a lot of how do you make the 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 paper mill happy. But there isn't a lot about how do you lead the organization to where it actually needs to go today. And that's not you know no what the main concern of these organizations is making tomorrow be a better version or at least as not a uh, not a worse version of what today has been so that it's it's about administration it's not about it's not really about kind of leading the organization so leaders that are trying to do this say well what do i do what's first second and third and and they try to use they try to use the the bureaucratic tools at their disposal and they go that that's not going to get this done people are just going to Tell me, I, they, I ask for change, and people are going to write reports to me about how what they're already doing uh, satisfies my change change request, and so that doesn't work. So it's so trying to figure out how to be effective in this change business is actually pretty tricky. So how how would you go about teaching shift skills to those kind of people? Because to get all of those benefits, it, it's a matter of how how is it delivered. Um, what have you What have you found to be the most successful ways of doing that? Yeah, so I think. Well, I think. Um, so first, I think there's this. There is this kind of awareness piece. There's a. There's kind of a piece of kind of telling stories about why change doesn't work today. And so we do. We try to do a fair amount of that in Big Beacon to be help people become aware that actually there is a need for things that you that you don't have. And then once people are aware of that and want that. Then uh, fairly ordinary kinds of training can be helpful. The much the same kind of training that that, for example, coaches get. We can do that kind of training with some special add-ons for for educational change initiatives that help people understand both the the individual skills, the the individual shift skills, as well as the organizational change skills that will help them be effective and re- help them realize how those are distinctive from the skills that they actually think will work and and that the sequence of things and who they enlist uh, will be different and how they enlist them will be different. Um, so training is helpful, but I think one of the things that we've learned also is that training itself is not enough. You have to figure out ways to help help people get these things into practice. And the best way that we know how to do that is to get people talking with other people who are trying to make changes and have them share uh, practices that work with one another and also help and, and coach them a little bit. Yeah, the, the community aspect is incredibly important and, and having connections with other people. Um, so where would you say can like higher educators find community in a like-minded group and with change initiatives that, that are in line with what they want to do? Yeah, well, and I, I think there are other people that are trying to do this, but that's that's essentially Big Beacon's core core mission. And, and it, it really is, Big Beacon is all about educating change um, initiative leaders in education and and um, and helping them be uh, help coach them to success and so big beacon has we have three groups we have one called the educational innovators working group which is right now a group of about 15 schools around the world from singapore to sao paulo to enschede in in um, the netherlands back to canada and the u.s um, of schools that are that are doing really interesting things, different things. They're all doing things that are quite different from one another, but they all have this. They they all see this need for unleashing and 
and education with heart and education um, that um, balances with obedience with um, with unleashing and courage. Um, and so th- um, so that that's one group. There's another group called Innovators Across Boundaries, which are thought leaders and consultants and and people in private practice that help schools make these changes. So that's a that's a group that we just formed this year. And then and we have a group called Students for Whole New Education that are students that are um, uh, see this vision and have either experienced it or would like to experience it and 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 ways in which they can promote change or even make change um, uh, by taking uh, steps on their own or in concert with faculty and, and administrative uh, leaders on their campuses. Do you have any other kind of suggestions or, or ideas that you want to start learning kind of practical ways to, to involve shift skills in, in what they do? Yeah, so oh, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah uh, actually, yeah, so say, say a little bit more about um, how you met that question. Uh, so aside from kind of being in a, in a group and kind of mm-hmm. read, reading new things, are there any other kind of avenues you think would be, would be good for people to learn these skills? Yeah, so or, I, or so. Coach, I, like we talk about so coaching, I, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, training and, and uh, we've offered this training regularly. Uh, we've offered it on campus at Olin. We've offered it um uh, on camp campuses for individual groups that want a group of faculty to learn it, um, the the change that sticks uh, training. I I think um, actually if you're uh, I've had I've just had recent communication with some of our big beacon members who, uh, and and other educators who have gone off and taken training themselves as coaches. So I think a great way to really um, to kind of get. Um, to get co- coaching culture uh, in your school is to go take training as a coach and start start using those things um, uh, on on your own. So uh, the the International Coach Federation has any number of approved programs that uh, around the world um, uh, that are quite good, and so that's another that's another way. Cool, very cool. And I know we have a, a nice webinar coming up that might be of interest to people if you want to. Kind of tell a little bit more about that while we have some time. Yeah, and actually, we're 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 almost at the end of the show, and so um, uh, as I I mentioned in the um, um, the intro to this segment, there on um, um, eighteen January on Wednesday yeah. at four p.m. Eastern, we have the uh, four keys to ineffective educational change, or how to botch transformation without really trying, tongue in cheek, and and um, we'll. In, a, in an hour long, um, for about 20 to 25 minutes, uh, I'll talk a little bit about the four mistakes that, the four common mistakes that people make when they're trying to make transformative change and how to not make them or how to overcome them. And um, uh, we'll, and then the remainder of the session, we'll, we'll have an interactive session talking about what people have tried and what hasn't worked and why it hasn't worked and have a nice conversation. And then we'll, we'll invite people um, to, uh, to to uh, start a change initiative at their school, and that can start from the top. It can start from the middle. It can start from the bottom. Um, students can change uh, can can start these change initiatives, and um, so we'll we'll tell people how to do to do that, and uh, and then those who are consultants or thought leaders and want to join innovators across boundaries, and and students who want to get involved uh, can can join students for a whole new education as well. 
No, sounds great. Uh, so since we're wrapping up, uh, kind of kind of gave a little overview there, but where can people find out more about Big Beacon and the community of change agents? Yeah, and I and and we are running. We're running out of time, but uh, to find out more, go to bigbeacon.org and um, sign up for the webinar. Or to find out more, uh, you can write to um, write to Emma. What Emma? What uh, email should they use for you? Uh, Emma Bigbeacon at gmail.com. And you can write to me at deg at bigbeacon.org. And um, and uh, Emma, thanks so much for joining me as co-host this time very welcome. And uh, you've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to Emma and help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org and sign up for our webinar coming 18 18 January at 4 p.m. Eastern. Join us next, next week, same time, same channel in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.